Kyle. Thanks so much for joining Making Healthcare Work for You, Different Perspectives and Empowering Solutions. I'm Stephanie Fields, joined by my co-host, Dr. Apoorv Gupta, and today we're welcomed by Dr. Robert Pearl, who is a professor at Stanford University School of Medicine and Business and author of two books, which I will let him tell you the title, but I love that all of the profits go to Doctors Without Borders and former CEO of in the Kaiser Permanente Group. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Stephanie, for having me today. I look forward to our conversation. We had the best conversation in the pre-interview because you are just so full of ideas for all these different ways to reform healthcare. But one of the ways that you think is truly powerful and can make an impact is through gener generative AI. So why don't you tell us how that can impact empathy and how that could really transform things? So generative AI, and I'll use the word GPT because everyone knows what that is, either chat GPT or GPT-4, is the modern version of artificial intelligence. And I love the letters. The P is pre-trained. It has all the information from the internet. It has a lot of social media inside of it. It has books. It has a tremendous amount of information. Then it has transformers. These are parameters that establish relationships between different parts of that database. And then it's generative. It creates answers to problems that are there. And for anyone who has yet to try it, please do, because you'll find that its power is far more than anything you could have imagined. So these were studies that were done uh, data that was reported in an article that I wrote in Forbes. Uh, it talked about, for instance, the University of Texas in Austin wanted to help patients with an alcohol problem. They needed to have information. They needed to have support. They needed to have follow-up. And they asked the staff to create a letter to be able to create a series of ways to engage patients in the most optimal, most empathetic conversation. And the staff didn't really do very much. So it asked ChatGPT to accomplish that. And it wrote a brilliant, amazingly empathetic uh, set of communications in all languages and at different educational levels something that would have taken people weeks or months to accomplish. Instead, it did it in a matter of days, improving performance. But the big study came was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA. And in this, they took questions that people had sent in on a social media site, ones that physicians wrote responses to. And they gave the same questions to ChatGPT and then they had a new group, a different group of clinicians read them. And they asked them which was better, A or B, without the people reviewing it knowing whether it was written by a human or a machine. 80% of the time, they picked the answer written by GPT-4 as being more, or more accurate, more excellent, clearer. And what was interesting is that only 5% of the human responses demonstrated empathy, 45% of the ones created by generative AI were deemed to be empathetic. In this case, when it comes to a uniquely human skill, 
expressing emotion, being able to communicate empathy, the machine bested the human. And that's that's a critical point, Dr. Pearl. I think you know you're kind of opening up everybody's thinking here. But the the critical point you just made is expressing empathy, which you had helped us distinguish earlier. It's not that the computer can feel empathy, but potentially, I guess, it's detecting empathy or or predicting empathy to some extent, and therefore expressing it. Can you help tease that out a little bit in terms of how the computer's doing it versus how the human's doing it? Well, I don't know that. Anyone really knows exactly how the application, the computer application, accomplishes it. And I don't even know that it's necessarily that different from humans, although we certainly know that there's a genetic inherent form of empathy that exists for all living beings in terms of others around them, particularly when it comes to areas of suffering. But to a large extent, we learn growing up from our parents from our teachers, from society, how to communicate those feelings. And in the same way that we learn it, the application can accomplish that. Because remember I said it was pre-trained. It has within it a huge amount of information from novels. It has it from the literature. It has it from social media. And it's able to gauge how that is best expressed and to mimic it the same way as humans we look at our parents and we tend to communicate with similar types of ways assuming that we think it's a positive way that they did it and most of us come to that conclusion so when you look at how the learning occurs i'm not sure that there's as much difference as we'd like to believe as human beings but in terms of the challenges I think what we're seeing is that there are two sets within medicine. The first today is that doctors don't have time. They are running on an ever faster treadmill, running on that simply to stay in place, to keep up as the demands and the pressures to do more and more, and the lack of affordability with half of Americans reporting difficulties paying the medical bills sitting in place. And so we're very task-oriented and much less interpersonally related. And the result of that is that we interrupt patients within the first 15 seconds because the stories they want to tell us about their lives aren't the things that we either believe is important for a diagnosis or capable of billing for in our interpersonal communications and patient visit. But there's a second part. And as uh, Stephanie said, I wrote two books. One was Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare, We're Usually Wrong, and which was a Washington Post bestseller. And the second one was Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. And in that, I focus on the culture, what we learn in medical school and in residency. And it becomes very clear on rounds that expressing empathy, hearing stories, engaging with patients for a prolonged time period to understand their lives just isn't valued. You get the A's by being able to recite some type of arcane article out of the literature. 
But if you sit at the patient's bedside for 15 or 20 minutes and tell the attending doctor, that individual doesn't want to even know what your conversation was about. They're not going to think it's important. So in both ways, I think it gets taken out of people who feel it, but then don't express it. They think they're being empathetic because they feel their own empathy, but that's not what the patient hears or experiences. It's so fascinating on so many levels. I mean, everything you say comes, you know, spawns five more ideas and more questions. But one of the things you said is that it is the culture of medicine and that it's trained out of them, which could be for multiple reasons. One, it's not generating profit in the traditional system. And two, that it's a mode of self-preservation to the doctors because they're told that if you don't get attached, then, you know, your decisions might be not swayed. And that also, if you don't get attached, then it's going to help you when you see these horrible things that you're not going to be able to remember. But we see time after time that the connection is what matter and does help people. So how do we jump over that hurdle for people who are out there? You know, we have, you're, you were part of Kaiser Permanente who has, practices in a different way and has positive results because of this. Other people we've talked to, university hospitals, ChenMed, who practice that culture of caring and are saying, this works, this works, this works, but nobody is listening. How do we get through the walls of the places that refuse to practice capitation, which you said is a key to getting over this hurdle? What you're describing is crucial, which is that the economics of healthcare, or the economics of actually any industry, but healthcare is an industry, drive the way that people will react. As you mentioned earlier, I teach the Stanford Graduate School of Business. And incentives are a major topic that students learn about. And we all think we can't be influenced by getting a coffee mug or a pen from a drug company. But the data says, no, no, it actually has a major impact on what we do. So incentives are incredibly powerful. And if your incentive is fee-for-service, you have motivation to charge higher prices and to do more. And as the prices go up, insurance have a motivation to force it down, to put in place prior authorization, to deny care, and all of the bureaucratic tasks that have driven burnout through the ceiling and into the sky. When I look at all of that, I think that the first piece of what made Kaiser Permanente so different when I was the CEO inside of it, was the notion that almost all of the care, 95% was capitated. It means we received a certain payment at the start of the year to provide all the healthcare needs of patients. And if you think about it, what does that mean? How do you be financially successful in a capitated system? Well, you need to prevent disease, avoid heart attacks, strokes, and cancer. We did that 30 to 40% better than the community around us. Was that part of empathy? Absolutely. Why would you want someone to suffer a heart attack or cancer? You've seen the impact it has emotionally, but also aligned financially. You want to avoid complications from chronic disease. Patients we know with diabetes, uh, patients we know with other un hypertension, other underlying problems have a higher chance 
of needing intense medical care when something goes wrong, like a heart attack or a stroke or cancer or kidney failure, all the problems that we know come out of that. And so we were able to manage those diseases more aggressively because we cared, but everyone cares, but because the economics align with it. And then the third part that I would say is the application of technology inside of it. This gets back to ChatGPT. There's a talk I'm going to be giving in Washington, D.C. next week. It's titled ChatGPT Friend or Foe. And I'm going to be talking about the fact that for anyone who wants to drive transformation, who wants to achieve a approach to medicine that raises quality, makes care convenient and affordable, this tool is going to become very powerful. And it's not going to make humans automatons, but for the reasons we discussed earlier, allow us to express empathy. It's going to allow us to have more time, more time because many of the tasks that we currently have to do, already it's doing the bureaucratic tasks, writing letters to insurance companies, but it's going to do care delivery. And for listeners and viewers, I'm not talking about what exists today. The versions that exist today that have been out for eight months, they will be seen as toys in a few years. The power of generative AI is doubling every year. Five years from now, it's going to be 30 times as powerful. Ten years from now, a thousand times more powerful. It's going to have information, not just like today, off of the internet and books and journals, but out of the electronic health record, video, making sure that patient safety is maximized. And when you work in an environment like Kaiser Permanente, that is reimbursed in a capitated way. When you work in an environment in which being able to make a diagnosis accurately as quickly as possible is in your interest, when you have leadership structured around that mission and purpose, then what you see is the expression of the empathy goes up. And according to J.D. Power and Associates, 20% higher satisfaction for patients, not because we had better doctors. They were the same excellent physicians as you saw in the community and the academic medical centers, but because the culture, the environment was fertile ground for the use of 21st century tools. So, Dr. Pearl, I mean, again, as Stephanie's saying, we could, my mind is racing also with so many different ideas. But the one uh, question I can't resist asking you, given your prior experience as the CEO at Permanente Medical Group, is you know, we always know within the industry and we say, who's the highest uh, you know, standard for quality, which places figured it out. Somehow Kaiser Permanente is always at the top of the list. And yet it then winds up becoming a little bit of a shrug because we're like, well, but they're capitated. So we can't do anything about it. What exactly is preventing other large groups from becoming capitated. I mean, this can't be, why is Kaiser Permanente always just seen as the standard bearer, partly because of the business model that you're talking about, or, or maybe mostly. And, and I, I guess I've never really understood what is really preventing the transformation of that you know, by other large uh, uh, provider systems. Let me start by saying that it's not just Kaiser Permanente because a major capitated model in the United States today is Medicare Advantage. 
So you can look at uh, places like ChenMed that I think you've had on your show that are doing a superb job as well for the same reasons. Now, the challenge that they have is it's predominantly a primary care organization rather than a multi-specialty medical group and one of size. Kaiser Permanente, we had 12 million members. Uh, they are obviously much smaller and focused in uh, a, a more limited uh, geographies compared to Kaiser Permanente. But uh, why is it so difficult? What's so difficult is the transition. Let's, I know you've done a lot of consulting to Stanford Hospital. So if you look at Stanford Hospital, and I went there tomorrow and said to the CEO, look, I can reduce your inpatient volume by 30% by a combination of higher quality, by which I mean preventive services, better management of chronic disease, and improvements in operational efficiency. 30% fewer patients. Think about how much savings that can happen. You'll attract new patients into the system and you'll do equally well as today with um, through the approach. What is that CEO or any CEO gonna say of a hospital? That sounds great, but we'll be bankrupt long before we get all those new members. It's that transition from where we are today to where you have to get to that makes that next do impossible. And you have a lot of other problems. You can't do capitated medical care unless you're integrated. And by integrated, I mean that you have physicians with broad collaboration, cooperation. You have physicians representing all specialties. Now in an academic center, that's what exists, although there often is a dearth of primary care. But in the community, bringing all those doctors together, you got to change the way that you pay them. You've got to be able to reward those specialties like primary care that are able to prevent disease when they do it effectively. And you need to have leadership skilled enough to accomplish it and a willingness of the people in the system to give them the power and authority to make the changes that are needed. And if everyone in the organization wants personal autonomy, you can't deliver that value in capitation. So capitation alone is not the answer. It's capitation that is well done, well led, technologically enabled, and accomplishing that rapidly rather than five to 10 years from now when nothing will remain in the organization that started down that road, I think is the reason you see so few organizations willing to go there. Even ones that think of themselves and say they're capitated today, where they have a some kind of value-based medical care, what you find is that 90% of the income they have is still on a fee-for-service basis with maybe 10%, or maybe they'll have... a. a a small incentive, a MIPS or a macro or something that's small. No, it's a huge leap. And I think that that's what stands in the way of the transition, unfortunately, because I personally believe it most aligns with the mission and purpose of medicine and why we became providers, whether we're doctors or nurses in the first place. Incredible insight you provided into capitation. And it's daunting, as I'm hearing all the different uh, let's say, criteria or parameters that have to be met in order to accomplish that. 
but it, maybe that's why you, as you had mentioned earlier, the the retail giants are particularly well poised to come in externally, create new business models, and exploit the opportunity in a completely different way than existing providers, which who have to transition from one model to another. So I, I maybe my final question, you can just help us understand a little bit of of the some of the retail giants that you have some experience with, and why you think they're better positioned to be able to address. Uh, the needs of the consumer in, in this uh, century? When I became the CEO in Kaiser Permanente, I was invited to give a talk at the Oregon Health Sciences building. And at the end of my talk, I had about 30 minutes before my ride was going to pick me up, take me to the airport. And I walked around the halls. And there I saw a sign that I remember to this day. It said in big letters across the top, quality, access, cost and smaller as the bottom it said pick any two that was the 20th century we didn't have the knowledge we didn't have the tools we didn't have the technology to be able to provide all three but today we do we have the knowledge we have the ability we know that we don't do a great job at preventing chronic disease and avoiding complications but we could do it we know that we have technology like generative AI that we could use, but we don't fully use it. Uh, we know that we have not fully connected people together. We can do a lot of these things. We just choose not to. And that's where I think that if the leaders of healthcare don't step forward, I'm really rooting for them. I want them to. I think the outcomes will be far better if it's led by clinicians than by someone from outside medicine. But I worry for the reasons that we discussed that they're not going to do it. And the retail giants are poised. By retail giants, I mean Amazon, CVS, and Walmart. They're all acquiring all of the pieces of healthcare. They don't want to be an add-on. They want to be a complete replacement, a disruption of the current system that exists. They all have pharmacies, Amazon having acquired PillPack, CVS, and Walmart having their own. They've all acquired primary care groups. Amazon purchased One Medical, CVS purchased Oak Street, and they purchased Signify, a home health agency. Walmart has a 10-year deal now with United Healthcare. Remember, United Healthcare employs 70,000 physicians, plus its networks. Uh, they all have advanced information technology systems. It's inevitable that they are all going to contract with local hospitals, but not all of them, just a few of them. And they're going to offer their own centers of excellence for cardiac surgery, for the kind of elective cardiac surgery. They're going to do it for a variety of total joints. They're going to do it for all those things that for which the patient can be uh, moved. And by moved, I mean offered the opportunity, let's say, go to the Mayo Clinic, where they're going to do 10,000 total joints a year replacing a lot of facilities that are out there. They are poised to completely replace the American healthcare system as we see it now. Now they're starting behind what currently exists. But to answer your question, their goal I believe is to move forward. And why do I say that? Because what they're doing the biggest investing in is Medicare Advantage, the capitated form of Medicare, not traditional Medicare. And I think what they see is that they could actually leverage their size and leverage their 
data analytics and leverage their leadership structure, all the pieces we said that were not present in medicine and be able to provide a consumer experience that is higher quality, more convenient and more affordable. And if you have any questions, just look at what they do today. If you want to buy something and you go to Amazon, they offer you broad choice. They offer you a good price for high quality and it's delivered the next day. I challenge anyone to find that in medicine. And I think in their own ways, those are also what the CVSs and the Walmarts of the world are going to do. I hope that out of this podcast and maybe some of the things that I write and some of the things you discuss, that the people inside medicine will move forward. But I hate to say it like this, but if when you analyze the history of disruption in industries across the world, and Clay Christensen is the expert on this, what you find is that almost always the change comes from outside, not inside. And when the people inside discover what's happening and they decide that now is the time to move forward, it's too late. I just hope that doesn't happen in medicine in the future. Thank you so much for having me here today. Thank you so much for sharing all of these amazing points. This was a fantastic conversation. Oh, incredible. Thank you so much, Dr. Pearl. Thank you all for watching. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you.